for the last few weeks, we have been, well, basically beginning with the ministry of the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul, of course, declared himself to be an able minister of the New Testament or New Covenant. And it's amazing, the knowledge that God gave to him, the complete turnaround in Saul of Tarsus to become the great apostle to the Gentiles. And uh, the epistles that we have give us the instruction and the way that we outlive our new life in Christ, as well as setting him forth. Uh, we have these epistles that direct us, that lead us, and show us God's right ways through the Apostle Paul. It's amazing, he who, of course, was so opposed to Christ, was saved by him, and became the great flaming evangel with his gospel, and with a pastoral heart, the teacher of God's people. And he began, of course, immediately to understand the great difference between Old Covenant Israel and New Covenant Israel, understanding, as he teaches clearly in Ephesians and in Galatians, that when Christ came, the cross changed everything completely, and that now God calls his people, his holy nation, from every kindred, tribe, tongue, people on the face of the earth. And last uh, Lord's Day, we looked into Romans chapter 10, verse 4, particularly, Christ is the end of the law, the goal for which it was given, for righteousness to everyone that believeth. I want us this morning to look into John chapter 6. And the passage that's been on my heart and one that is very challenging, should be, to every one of us. And thinking about what Paul wrote in Romans 10.4, that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth, that everything that went before was pointing toward the coming of God's consummate purpose in the Lord Jesus Christ. All the law and the prophets, he fulfills them. They had their reference in God's purpose to him. And so not only the law in its moral, ceremonial, civil aspects, but all the objects in the Old Testament also had their relationship to him. And as I was thinking about that and meditating in the Gospels and in the Gospel of John, of course we know that in the first chapter of John, John sets forth the wondrousness of the deity of Christ, the Word, the revelation of the Father, and the one through whom God creates all things, without whom nothing was made that is made. Then he goes on to tell us about John the Baptist. Of course, John the Baptist was involved in prophetic scripture in the coming forth and declaring of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ who would come and be the one offering that God accepts for sin. All old covenant sacrifices but looked forward to the coming of Christ. They were temporary. They could not remove sin. And so John the Baptist points to the Lord Jesus on the banks of the Jordan, and he says, Behold the Lamb of God 
course, we've got other things, objects. Um, I guess the most, well, the, the one probably best known is in John chapter 3, when the Lord Jesus Christ speaks of that serpent, that brazen serpent in the wilderness that Moses was instructed to make and put it in a position where all who could see uh, would look to that and, and be healed from the serpent bites in their rebellion against God. And, of course, the Lord Jesus says, as the serpent, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Well, we could go through a lot, but in John chapter 6, the Lord Jesus Christ is showing us that it was not the manna that could save of the old covenant and the old covenant Israel, but what that manna represented, and it is fulfilled in him, in Christ. But we're going to look, consider the context in which these passages are found. In John chapter 6, beginning at verse 27, we'll read through verse 35. And the Lord Jesus says, Labor not for the meat which perisheth, but for that meat which endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you. For him hath God the Father sealed. Then said they unto him, What shall we do that we might work the works of God? Jesus answered and said unto them, This is the work of God, that ye believe on him whom he hath sent. They said therefore unto him, What sign showest thou then, that we may see and believe thee? What dost thou work? Our fathers did eat manna in the desert, as it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven, but my Father giveth you the true bread from heaven. Now, for just a minute, stopping there, when the Lord Jesus speaks of the true bread, and when the New Testament often is speaking of the truth as it's fulfilled, in certain contexts it is truth against error. But in other contexts, like here, it is truth in the sense of the substance that was only foreshadowed of old. So this is what he means when he says, My Father giveth you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven and giveth life unto the world. Then said they unto him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. And Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. And then I want us to read verses 48 through 51. I am that bread of life. Your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which cometh down from heaven that a man may eat thereof and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh 
which I will give for the life of the world. That's interesting also in John. The word world is used in the sense of inclusiveness of Gentiles. Well, a bit of information concerning the context. News of a young man. A young man who had the power to heal sicknesses, to cure diseases, miraculously. A Galilean Jew. His name, Jesus of Nazareth. His fame, because of these miracles, spread very quickly throughout Galilee, as we learn in various places, like Mark chapter 1, verse 28. Multitudes would flock to him, to see him, personally witness the power that he had, would press upon him and his disciples, there were so many. And so pressed were they that he sought rest for his own apostles. Leaving the western shore of the Galilean lake, we would call it a lake. The Hebrews called any large body of water a sea, but it was a large lake in our estimation as we would consider today. They left the western shore of the Galilean lake. They crossed to the eastern shore by boat. That would be a distance of about six miles across. But the crowd was very excited, extremely excited. And we're taught in Matthew chapter 14, verse 15, quote, they followed him on foot out of the cities. They didn't take boats. They went the land route. That route was far more difficult, of course, than going across in a boat. So they'd go through a place that had marshes, rough terrain, and the walking distance was about 10 miles. And they did this until they found him and his disciples on the other side of the lake. So that in John chapter 6 and verse 2, and a great multitude followed him. Why? Because they saw the miracles which he did on them that were diseased. Then, on the eastern shore, they would not only be the witnesses of great things, but would be the recipients of a glorious manifestation of his power. The miracle of the loaves and the fishes. An incredible miracle to us. But nothing for him to perform. And you say, can we believe that the Lord Jesus Christ would take five barley loaves and two small fishes and feed over 5,000? You can believe it if you believe that he created the world that he brought all things into existence, that he, as the God-man, had power over the elements. Indeed, he did. He would take those five barley loaves and two fishes 
from the hands of a small boy and feed more than 5,000 until they were full and bread was left over. So, they beheld the miracles. They were the recipients of an astounding miracle. The feeding of over 5,000 with five loaves of barley and two small fishes. So what was their attitude now? Their attitude, here's the kind of teacher we want. Here's the one for us. Here's the kind of leader that we would bow the knee to as king. Here, the kind of benefactor who will take care of us and provide all of our wants. So what did they want to do? In verses 14 and 15 of John 6. Then those men, when they had seen the miracle that Jesus did, said, this is a truth, that prophet that should come into the world. When Jesus therefore perceived that they would come and take him by force to make him a king, he departed again into a mountain himself alone. Their attention was not drawn to the wisdom of his words. Their attention was not draw, uh, drawn to the glory of his person. Nor even were they brought to inquire as to why these miracles were given, what they pointed to, what they concerned, what they said about him. Their enthusiasm. Oh, they had tremendously excited enthusiasm. They beheld miracles. They knew he could, with a word, heal a broken body. They recognized that he could feed miraculously. And they were really excited. Problem. What was the problem? The problem is that it had its source not in thou, O Christ, art all I want. It had its source in what they thought he could do to meet their wants and their needs. Take care of our problems. Fix us up. Like religion always is. Never drawn to him. It's what he's done for me. That was their attitude. And when he, not yielding to their desire to make him a king, which was after worldly sense when he sent his disciples back and he would send them back to the western shore he himself would go to a mountain alone to pray the crowd would seek him they didn't find him so they hired boats to take them to seek him then knowing he'd not gone in the boat with his disciples back across the lake. He put them in the boat. They went across. He didn't get in the boat. How'd he get over there? He who had power over all elements walked across the lake. 
Well, the thought of those who would come and inquire would never cross their mind that he walked on the lake to get across it. Then they ask a question he ignores. That is, he ignores answering it. Because he knew their true need. He knows our true need. Sometimes we think we have need of something that we don't and would hurt us. Sometimes we think we don't need this when we need that very same thing that's taking place. We just don't have enough faith to trust God in the midst of these things sometimes, I fear. So he'll ignore their question. But he'll address their true need. So we read in verses 25 through 29. Jesus answered them and said, well, verse 25, I'm sorry, I began verse 26 there. And when they had found him on the other side of the sea, they said unto him, Rabbi, when camest thou hither? Jesus answered them and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, you seek me not because you saw the miracles, but because you did eat of the loaves and were filled. Labor not for the meat which perisheth, but for that meat which endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you, for him hath God the Father sealed. Then said they unto him, What shall we do that we might work the works of God? Jesus answered and said unto them, This is the work of God, that you believe on him whom he hath sent. You know, the Jews had a problem. It, it characterized them. It characterized their history. The Apostle Paul brought it out in few words when he declares in 1 Corinthians 2, the Jews require a sign. The Jews require a sign. Not only here, I mean, that was before, of course, you can go back all the way to the miraculous, wondrous deliverance from Egypt through the Red Sea, and still they were requiring things, other things, signs. There's an irony also, of course, in their question. Consider what they had witnessed. What had they witnessed? Strange-sounding, since they asked for a sign of bread. What had just happened? The Lord had just fed 5,000, more than 5,000, miraculously. And yet they're asking for a sign. But keep in the mind, keep in mind something that may explain it to us. Why would they do such a thing when he just fed them with barley bread and fish? The Jews were strict literalists. They were strictly literalists. They looked for an earthly, literal Jewish kingdom. And they thought that when Messiah would come, 
that this would be a kingdom supremely Jewish in nature. So even when the Lord speaks of himself as the bread of life, they're totally ignorant of the meaning. They're totally ignorant of any spiritual comprehension and understanding. Well, there was something they were taught about the Messiah. They were taught, and it formed part of their expectation when Messiah would come. They were taught that he would literally duplicate the miracle of the manna in the wilderness, not just barley bread, <laughs> but the manna. That the Messiah would do that. Of course, Scripture didn't teach that. That was in their traditional teaching. But they were looking for Messiah to renew that miracle of the manna. So in their view, it must have been the Lord had miraculously fed them. But it wasn't with manna. It was barley bread with which he fed them. They dared then impose on God, uh, on God the sign that they required before they would believe. A sign. But no signs. No signs, no matter how big the sign, no matter how soever many the signs would enable sinful nature to rise above itself and apprehend that which is spiritual, vital, true. J.C. Ryle made a comment. They were always deceiving themselves with the idea that they wanted more evidence and pretending that if they had this evidence, they would believe. Well, was it just with the Jews, that mindset? No, hardly. Thousands in every age do the same. The plain truth is that it is want of heart, not of evidence that keeps people back from Christ. You see, men love darkness. John had already taught this in the third chapter. They love darkness rather than light. Light is come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than light. They wouldn't come to the light. They hated the light. Christ is the light. But they're in darkness. Sin darkness. At enmity with God. But the real crux of the matter, as the Lord reveals, and their own words would express it, is that they wanted him for what he could do for them. They wanted him for what he could do for them. It wasn't him they wanted. It wasn't him they wanted unless he could do what they wanted him 
to do. So you see, he revealed the real reason they went to so much effort to seek him. Why? Because they were sinners in need of a Savior? No! Because they felt and understood they were lost and he came to save the lost. No! No, no. Why was it? Why did they seek him so fervently? Why did they go to so much trouble to walk a 10-mile route that was full of all kinds of obstacles to get to him? He tells them, verse 26. Jesus answered them and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Ye seek me, not because you saw the miracles, which means they would not have comprehended and understood that even, but because you did eat of the loaves and were filled. He had satisfied their human hunger. Even when he begins to declare the wondrous spiritual truth that he is the true manna, that he is the one who fulfilled what that manna represented, and that God, not Moses, who gave the manna of old, has now given what that manna only foreshadowed and symbolized. He himself. Him. His own person. He himself as the true bread of life. Even when he declares himself to be the bread of life, they still think in literal material terms. In verse 34. When he said in verse 33, The bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven and giveth life unto the world. Then said they unto him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. They're thinking in material terms still. That's the way of the world, of outward things. You know, that's the way even of so-called Christianity at times in the world. It will move from God's method because it doesn't seem to be successful. And it'll use other methods, man-made methods, in order to fill the pews, if you please. There are those, of course, who continue, as God has commanded and taught and given the centrality of the ministry of his word. I mean, some other churches, they, they differ. Everywhere you go, there's a church that maybe proclaims the very same truth we do, but they do things differently a little bit. It's come from another church, you get used to that. You always want to change this church you come to. <laughs> but that's kind of a normal thing, I guess. But if we're tempted to feel that sometimes a struggling ministry would be more successful, get more people in if we adopted some of the methods that are used today to, quote, build churches. 
and are tempted to move from what we know God has ordained in his word, we better remember what these in John chapter 6 gave no thought to. No thought to. That manna of old that but foreshadowed the true bread of life. When you read the history of Israel of old and you get to Numbers chapter 11, you find out they came to despise the manna. That manna represents Christ. That manna had everything they needed. But they came in a spiteful language of there's nothing but this manna before our eyes in Numbers 11. We want what we had in Egypt. Boy, they forgot what they had in Egypt. We want the leeks and the cucumbers. Give us the steaks. and the, Give us these things that delight our senses. There's nothing but this manna before our eyes. That sometimes, if that ever becomes the attitude of a church, it is heading quickly toward apostasy, though it may find ways to flourish. Nothing but Christ. We've got to have more than Christ. Well, of course, doctrinally, that was from the beginning. We've got to have more than Him. You can't just preach the Word, you can't just proclaim Christ all the time. We better. <laughs> what more do we want than everything? We have it all when we have him. Everything. And we haven't begun to discern and mine the riches that are in him. And when one comes to know him, he's who they want. He's who they want. They want to learn of Him. They want to know Him. They want to grow in the knowledge of Him. They want to behold the beauties and the glories of God that are manifested in the Son of God. Marvel at the wondrousness of the humility and the love that led Him to the cross and obedience to the Father for sinners like us. That attitude We've got to have more. We've got to do something different. That attitude is to be uh, uh, duplicated wherever Christ is not enough. Wherever the true and eternal riches that are true riches are not discerned in Him. And the method God ordained of ministering Him not held to immovably. So we got to have our orchestras, our choirs. We've got to have all kinds of entertainment and music. We've got to have all of these things to supplement. We've got to have programs that people can engage in and feel good about themselves. And I'm not exaggerating. What was Paul's ministry? The Jews require a sign. 
And the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. Under the Jews a stumbling block and under the Greeks foolishness. But under them which are called both Jews and Greeks. Christ the wisdom of God and the power of God. There were those who were trying to add things to the Corinthians. From their culture. Philosophical things and so forth. That was really a source of great entertainment to them. Paul says, I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Thus the attitude encroaches why are you here right in the middle of this message preacher why are you here why am I here why do men seek a church for what reason do they seek it oh my friends it's not the reason they have a tremendous program for this that or the other that's not the reason. They have a beautiful choir. That's not the reason. Not biblically. The churches have come to accommodate those who want other than Christ and manna only. When the Christ they set forth then He's the one who will make them happy. You know, you know, happiness is the Lord. So, you know, this is the one who will make you happy. This is why it comes. It'll meet all your wants in this world. Don't have to worry about a thing. He'll take care of you. They'll make you feel good about yourself. Make you comfortable. Take care of your problems. Give you entertainment even. Make you feel useful in doing something important. Does that happen? Do you know what happened of old? When they came out of Egyptian bondage miraculously by the power of God and the redemption of the blood of the Lamb. You know what happened and God miraculously took care of them? Fed them. Quailed in the evening. Manna. In the morning. You ever read? Well, we read together, didn't we, what that manna was like. Boy, I'd like to taste something like that. I don't think you're going to find a bakery that's going to have anything to top what that, that tasted like. Tasted good. Just like when the sinner tastes and finds that the Lord is good. When one truly tastes, finds that the Lord is good, there's nothing that can replace him. 
There's nothing that can be added to him. Do you remember we talked about Numbers 11? They were murmuring, they were complaining. We've got to have more than this. Nothing but this manna before our eyes. You know what happened? God gave them their request. He gave them what they wanted. He sure did. They would eat it until it became loathsome to them. All these quails and all the stuff. But you know what a solemn verse is that ought to cause us to take notice quickly? It's found in Psalm 106, verse 15. God gave them their request. What else did he do? What else? He gave them their request. He fixed up their worldly needs and wants to the full. What else did he do? He sent leanness into their souls. Isn't that a solemn thing? Isn't that a solemn thing? That can happen with individuals. That can happen with churches. They seem to flourish. They have all kinds of activities and things and entertainments and social gatherings and purposes to take care of. And seem to flourish. Leanness in the soul. So you let some trial come along there. We're going to say, I'm not going to trust God and serve him if he does this, that, or the other. Why? Well, Daniel says, well, we love ease, don't we? We love things that fit our desires. Just a solemn passage. A soul-searching passage. God help us. With all the pressures and all the disappointments and all the struggles and all the feelings that maybe we're not doing enough. Or maybe we're not doing this which would draw in. Maybe we're not doing that which would be for our delight. Maybe we ought to continue doing exactly what God has taught us. What do you think? I think of what what Paul taught Pastor Timothy, telling him, last days are here, perilous times are here, difficult things have come. How are you going to handle it when all these changes take place? He says in 2 Timothy 3, 14 and following, continue thou and the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them, and that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith, 
which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be instant in season, out of season, reprove rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but will heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned into fables. All kinds of things come. There are those who, oh, they got all the prophecies, what's taking place in the world, what's happening in this place, that way, what's going to come place and what's going to happen. And they get distracted, distracted, turned, not to Christ, this has always happened. There are those who want something else. May God grant us the grace in seeking Christ for himself. Hello? <laughs> God help us and grant us the grace in seeking Christ for himself only. And being satisfied with him and him alone. To be able to say in truth, if I have him, I have all. If I have not him, I have nothing at all. Everything in this world. You remember Ecclesiastes? Solomon wrote. Remember what the word wrote when he looked at everything under the sun? He summed it up in three words. You remember? All is vanity. Doesn't matter what we gain. Accumulate wealth. Guess what? You came into the world with nothing. Guess what you're going to leave with? What are you going to leave with? Nothing. You're going to leave it behind. You can't bring it with you, not then. You can't bring it with you now to get to Christ. Talk about the straight gate. The narrow way the Lord spoke of. It's so narrow. That it only lets one person in at a time. Just one. And then you've got to leave all your baggage behind. You can't bring your baggage. It won't fit. <laughs> Lo and behold, what are we going to learn from Scripture? You can't even get through it by being you. As you are. You've got to leave you behind. Deny yourself. And take up your cross and follow Christ. If I truly have him, I have all. I have everything. I've got all I want. Was the huckster, Bob, you know, the thing Spurgeon put out about the man who said, I'm a sinner and nothing at all, but Jesus, my, my Savior, is my all in all. Do we have those attitudes today? 
If I him have him, I have everything. I have all. If I have not him, I don't care whatever else I have. I have nothing at all. Well, let's look in John 6 here at the only answer that our Lord gives these who seek to have their worldly wants satisfied by him. As he sets forth himself only as the true bread of life. So, what the Lord Jesus Christ gives cannot be separated from what he is. We could rightly consider that all who possess some great truth have some knowledge to give or some wisdom to impart when received and believed to the benefit of those receiving it, we could say that they have given food for the soul and food for the mind. What's the pastoral calling? Take heed unto thyself, unto the flock over which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to do what? To feed the church of God. Which he hath purchased with his own blood. The messenger is but the channel, not the truth itself. We preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. But you know, a true message can be delivered by a false professor or an apostate. Isn't that that's scary, isn't it? Remember an Eastern prophet named Balaam? What well, some of the most glorious prophecies you can read were given through him. The Lord Jesus Christ chose twelve apostles. He empowered them to preach. One of them was who? Judas Iscariot. Because somebody can tell the truth, they can copy it, they can read it, they can find it from somebody else and not theirs. And they'll be as false they can be. They can desire knowledge, but never truly come to know Christ in a greater, deeper, one more wondrous way. Because they don't know him. My, so far, a lot of times now, we have those who step in pulpits, they read a passage of Scripture and never refer to it again. <laughs> you know, that take place? And never preach Christ. They'll preach your needs. You need this. This is the way you do that. You'll do the other. But they don't preach Christ. There's no real conviction deep down in the soul of what this awful thing called sin is that separates from God. And the only way that distance is bridged. But they want to have people feeling good. If they don't feel good, they might not come back.
our Lord unfolds the great truth that he in his person and because of the cross as we shall see and comprehend he is the living bread he is the bread of life not only does he impart the gift of eternal life not only does it come from his hands the son of man shall give this unto you but it is he himself verse 27 Labor not for the meat which perisheth, but for that meat which endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you. For him hath God the Father sealed. But what does he give? What does he give? He gives himself. It says in verse 35, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger. And he that believeth on me shall never thirst. In other words, he's all I need. <laughs> he's everything. He's all of it. It's impossible to separate what Christ is from what he gives. When he saves a sinner, when he calls one by his gospel, when they come to behold, afflicted in their own being, guilty and knowing it, and they behold him as the one sacrifice for their sins and who it is. He gives himself to them. He gives himself to them. He becomes mine. You comprehend that? He is mine. He gives himself to me. For me? Yes. And to me. Yeah, it's reciprocal, isn't it, Patty? I am my beloved. And my beloved is mine. Isn't that wondrous? What's more wonderful than that? What's more glorious for the one who's truly saved by God's grace, who's come under a work of God's Holy Spirit, brought to the true knowledge of the Son of God? and true repentance from sin, that awful thing that then becomes hated and resisted, what's more precious than I am his and he is mine? Then you cannot separate the only means God ordains 
for receiving this life-giving bread into your famished soul, this believing, trusting him alone, from coming to him. It all means the same thing. In verse 35, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. That means coming to him, as in verse 37, all that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. Oh, you might feel feeble in coming. But he says, come and I won't cast you out. Trust me. And your soul will be fed. This is not a physical act. This is not something you do walking somewhere down the church aisle or anything else. This is not a prescribed prayer. It's a work in the heart that brings us to trust the living Lord of glory. He who died and rose again and lives forever. Again, going to St. Louis, Lord willing, and I'll be gone on the 17th of April on Easter, but the week before I want to preach on the resurrection, if you don't mind. I don't think you will. The infallibly proven resurrection. This coming to him, this eating of him, it's a spiritual act. It's not a physical act. It's enabled only when God does a sovereign work of regenerating a soul from spiritual death to life. A moving of the soul to be given up to him and him alone. And all the metaphors, all the metaphors our Lord used to describe this one spiritual act is in this discourse. Eating, drinking, coming. Those are metaphors. Speaking of physical things, but what biblical faith is really about, really about, what a genuine self-abandoned trust in Christ is all about. It says in verses 53 through 56, Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. What's he talking about? He's talking about the cross. And our coming only to Christ, Jesus Christ and him crucified for sinners. Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. A spiritual act. For my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. 
He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me and I in him. There is a wondrous, glorious revelation. It may be mysteriously beyond our complete understanding. But when by grace God works in you and you freely take this gift, the very life of the giver becomes yours, enters into you. Christ liveth in me. Could write Paul. Christ in you to the Colossians. I want him, don't you? Finally, you cannot separate true, permanent, eternal soul satisfaction from Christ and Him only. You can try everything you want to. It'll eventually grow tiring. It'll eventually lose its appeal. But there's a characteristic of true salvation. It's in verse 35. I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger. And he that believeth on me shall never thirst. You see, he is the living bread, ever living. Ever living. He's the living bread. Well, that's quite different from that manna that only prefigured him as the bread of life. That manna of old, and it was designedly this way. You know, if you break bread, <laughs> the next day it's still okay, still fresh, right? I mean, when we were much younger and living very frugally, we found a place where you could get, what was it called? Day-old bread, you remember? It was good. It was just fresh as it could be. But you know what happened to that manna? If it was held one day too long, one day, it bred worms and it stunk. But you see, the Lord Jesus Christ gives and sustains life because it is living bread living bread and this eternal soul satisfaction does not mean that we won't be in a continual craving for him because the one who does not continually crave for him has not tasted and found that he's good rather it means they will desire for none other than he Thou, O Christ, art all I want. More than all in thee I find. As the heart panteth after the water brooks, so panteth my soul after thee, O God. My soul thirsteth for God. 
For the living God, when shall I come and appear before God? Wrote the psalmist. David, O God, thou art my God. Early will I seek thee. My soul thirsteth for thee. My flesh longeth for thee in a dry and thirsty land where no water is. To see thy power and thy glory. So as I've seen thee in the sanctuary. What's the desire of the heart who comes to know him? We just come to know him and we know little. I still marvel. I don't know as much about him as I would like. I know little about him. But every time I find out something, it's glorious, wondrous. The Paul spoke of the unsearchable riches of Christ. You have him, you're rich. I don't care if you have a billion dollars. And things. You're the most poverty-stricken person there is if you have not him. Paul wrote that I may know him. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being made conformable unto his, uh, unto his death. Yea, say the following words after the words I say. Say it good up where it can be heard. The Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. It reminds me, I'm always reminded of a little girl in Sunday school one time who learning to memorize scripture, but she wrote down the first verse of Psalm 23, got a little bit off, but the heart was behind it. The Lord is my shepherd. And that's all I want. <laughs> what a Savior. What a Lord. Thou, O Christ, art all I want. More than all in Thee I find. May God bless the ministry of His Holy Word. Someone like to pick a hymn? Five fifty four. We can figure it out. We'll sing. Let's it. sing 554. <laughs>
John, please dismiss us in prayer.